the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Night racing is back at Richmond Raceway. This spring, top NASCAR drivers like Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Virginia's own Denny Hamlin will battle under the bright lights. And this historic track also offers a rocking infield experience with unparalleled access to your favorite drivers and one of the best tailgate scenes around. For a weekend of friends, family, and amazing short track action, head to Richmond Raceway, March 29th through 31st. Get tickets now at richmondraceway.com. This podcast is sponsored by Regatta Outdoors. It's a glorious spring day and you're heading out on a walk. What do you bring with you? A paper map? Plenty of snacks? Well, of course they're important, but any seasoned hiker will tell you that footwear is the first thing to consider. Whether you prefer relaxed rambles or challenging summits, comfortable and reliable shoes are essential. Regatta has waterproof and breathable footwear for the whole family, for every outdoor occasion. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com. Welcome to Sound Escapes from BBC Countryfile magazine. I'm Hannah Tribe and this week we're heading deep into the Sussex countryside in the company of writer and angler Chris Yates. In this, the first chapter from his book The Secret Carp, Chris heads out on an eerie late summer's evening to find the perfect pool for fishing. The Perfect Pool Any fisherman who dreams of the perfect pool is always hoping that his imagined paradise really exists and that one day he might actually find it. Many years ago, I thought I had stumbled on such a place, but because it was night time and a mist was rising, I could not, at first, be sure. It was the scent that originally led me to it, the soft, ripe smell of vintage water that is familiar to anyone who has spent half his life fishing for carp by the side of old ponds and lakes. I was on my motorcycle, riding back from a long day's chub stalking on the Sussex Rother near Petworth. It was late, but instead of making straight for home, I took a foolish plunge into a maze of twisting lanes, looking for a particularly fine-sounding pub a friend had told me about. I didn't find it. In fact, I got hopelessly lost. Then the lane I was following dropped into a wooded valley and I found myself passing through a cloud of that sweet, evocative scent. It was so strong and so infused with all the other summer smells I associate with carp fishing that I had to stop and investigate. Slowing down meant the scents stopped rushing into my face, but though less concentrated in the stillness, they were still just as infectious, a lovely potpourri of elder, dog rose, honeysuckle and wild garlic weaving through the denser smell of ancient water like wood smoke weaving through a barn of apples. Somewhere nearby was a pond or a lake and it was essential that I find it. The setting fulfilled all my requirements for perfect carp country. Deep valleys, old woods, no obvious signs of habitation and lanes that had more traffic going across than along them. Since leaving the main road, I had not seen a single car coming or going, but there had been roe deer, fox, rabbits, and a hare crossing in front of me. Taking off my crash helmet, I leant my bike against a fence post and stood in the road listening. I hoped there might be the distant sound of water trickling or rushing over an outfall, but apart from the ticking of the cooling engine, 
all was silent. The canopy of beech trees reached overhead, but there was not, at least, complete darkness. The moon was up, only a few days from full, dappling the lane with vague spots of light. I began walking, looking for an opening through the trees where I might get a better view of my surroundings. After a short distance, the tall, smooth trunks on my left became stark silhouettes against a weirdly luminous background. Low-lying roads along the way had taken me through several pockets of mist, and with the clear night rapidly cooling after a hot day, conditions were pointing towards a fine, fat fog. There seemed to be a hollow lower down the valley, a perfect cup for the kind of mist that wells up from deep, tepid, still water. By dawn it would probably have overflowed and drowned the whole county. I stepped under the trees towards the light, but bramble and blackthorn made an almost impenetrable barrier and I could not find a way through. However, after a few jacket-ripping yards, I did find a large half-decayed tree stump which improved my view once I'd climbed up onto it. Straight away I saw what I'd hoped to see. Between two beech trunks I looked down at what appeared to be an expansive pear-shaped lake. It was surrounded on three sides by woods, but I could not see anything of the banks because of the mist. The low, early summer moon was directly overhead, and the mist looked as white and as smooth-surfaced as a field of snow. Only by staring at it for several minutes could I detect the slow shifting, the almost imperceptible rising and falling of the upper layers and the curious current of air drew a long column of vapour out of the main mass, and it rose up, pale and transparent against the trees, before detaching itself from its base, only to dissolve and vanish. Of course, all the while, I was thinking that this might be my perfect carp pond. I even hoped I might sniff out the very smell of carp amongst the other scents, for the fish do exude a faint yet distinctive aroma. It does not actually have anything fishy about it, reminding me more of dried herbs and marmalade. There may have been something like that in the air, but it was not strong enough to convince, and anyway, carp or no carp, I knew I would have to return in daylight. I turned to go, and as I began wading back through the brambles, I heard, in spite of my commotion, a sudden sharp sound. I froze and listened, and it came again the echoing crash of a heavy fish leaping. Stupendous carp lived in that lake. It had never been fished. In fact, its existence had become almost entirely forgotten by the locals and the owners of the huge estate on which it lay. It was overgrown and inaccessible, its banks a tangled wilderness, its margins speared by reeds, jungled with weeds, bristling with the gnarled branches of drowned, fallen trees. The great fish would emerge from the depths and cruise between and beneath these reefs of dead wood, or they would materialise out in the lake centre, drifting just below the surface, looking like the shadows of passing clouds. These were the images I carried home with me that night, and which grew even more wonderful and improbable in the days that followed, despite the fact that I could not find the lake on my map. Perhaps, I thought, it had been further north than I remembered, or maybe, as sometimes happens, the cartographer had, for some reason, failed to show it. However, as a lifelong carpologist and hunter of lakes, I felt my optimism was justified. As well as having the right smell, the place had the right feel. Since quite early in my angling career, I have had this picture in my head of an ideal carp pool. Moreover, 
I did not merely hope that such a place existed. I was convinced, even though my vision of perfection, as described above, was rather unusual. All the ingredients, though, the unkempt banks, the solitude, the tangled margins, the shadowy depths, all were necessary for that essential and yet indefinable quality, mystery. Every water, from winding brook to mountain tarn, has an element of mystery, but the mystery, the enigma of a carp lake, should be deep and profound, as befits the nature of the fish itself. The problem nowadays, of course, is that, because of over-intensive angling, too many carp waters have had their mystery literally fished out of them. There is Redmire Pool, for instance, in Herefordshire, a legendary place, and once the most magical still water in the country. But its jewel-in-the-crown status has now robbed it of much of its enchantment. Over the last 40 years it has generated so much interest and attention, much of it of the wrong kind, that its finest quality has become diminished. But it's not simply a lack of mystery which, to me, can undermine the complete enjoyment of carp fishing. There are many other reasons, some obvious, some obscure, why a lovely-looking place could never be called perfect. And unfortunately, there have also been near-perfect pools that were despoilt, and some that have always been denied me. Beechmere, in Devon, deep and dark, encircled by towering trees, seemed the epitome of my ideal. But like Redmire, it was rather too high up in the carp-fishing hierarchy, rather too well known. Furthermore, I felt that the atmosphere was cool and occasionally even disturbing, as if the pool was a perpetually staring, hostile eye. A much more affable water was Sheepwash, a pool of about three acres set in gently rolling Sussex farmland. When I first visited it, in 1973, it was unknown, undisturbed, unfished. There were plenty of carp, one or two of them very large. There were willows in the water, lilies, and vast weed beds. Yet though it was pretty, and despite the fact that I and a few good friends had many enjoyable days there, sheepwash could sometimes seem prosaic, even bland. Abbotsmere, in a green fertile valley in the Black Mountains, seemed almost perfect when I first fished it in 1970. It lay in the grounds of a former monastery and had a lovely hallowed air about it, a small pool, not more than two acres, surrounded by crack willows, alders and oaks. The carp were genuine wildies, whose ancestry obviously dated back to the time of the monks. Beautiful fish, graceful, streamlined, richly coloured in various shades of gold, ochre and blue. In 1972 the pool was unofficially stocked with mirror carp, which grew quite large, and it was subsequently invaded by anglers for whom size counted for everything. Nothing else mattered in their headlong rush to accumulate carp poundage. The tranquil paradise became littered with beer cans and bait tins. It became crowded. It became depressing. I crossed it off my list. Another love affair that ended badly concerned Furnace Lake, near Felbridge, Sussex. It was a large, square sheet of water surrounded by high woods and great beds of reeds. When I first saw it in 1968, I was immediately struck by its quiet grandeur, its cathedral atmosphere. The carp were mostly small wildies, but there were also monsters known through legend and by the occasional tremendous splash as something rose from the depths. I actually hooked one of these mythical creatures on a piece of crust, and its inevitable departure still haunts me. 
For a few years, this lake was overflowing the pages of my fishing diary, but then, tragically, a mysterious disease wiped out almost the entire stock. The spirit went out of the place, and though it was later restocked with mirrors, it was never the same again. There was a chain of carpools in woodland to the northeast of Lewis, the largest of which, with its overhung bays, its overgrown banks, its wooded island and its clear depths, struck me as one of the most attractive, seductive carp waters I had ever seen. Alas, the owner refused me permission to fish. I discovered another marvellous pond in a dense hazel wood near the village of Dunsfold in Surrey. Reedy, weedy, it was mostly quite shallow and had, despite its tranquillity and remoteness, a uniquely cheerful, optimistic character. It was also the domain of a colony of immense carp, and I thought that even if I never obtained a permit, I would still have to fish there, regardless. Then, by chance, I discovered the identity of the owner, and my pleading letter was sympathetically replied to. I was given permission to fish there whenever I liked. Yet there are places on earth that are more than simply mysterious. No matter how glorious or magical, or maybe because of their magic, they are somehow impossible to revisit. I still have the owner's letter, dated May 1969, but it's probably too late now to take advantage of it. For all kinds of not very good reasons, I never went back to Dunsfold. However, ten years later, the mist-shrouded lake preyed more effectively on my imagination, and after a few days I knew I had to return. Even in daylight, I presumed it was going to be difficult to find again without a map reference. But after an hour, chugging aimlessly through the labyrinth of hedged-in, tree-hung lanes, I recognised a landmark, picked up my trail, and so came once more to the place where the road had taken a dive into watery incense. In the breezy afternoon, the fragrances were unnoticeable, and the air was merely fresh and sweet. Leaning my bike against the same fence post as before, off the road, the turf was too soft for the prop stand, I quickly found a straightforward route through the belt of beeches, avoiding all the thorns and brambles. Yet before I reached the edge of the trees, I suddenly knew exactly what I was going to find. I walked out into an open field and looked down into a wide hollow that bristled with reed tussocks and clumps of sallow, but which contained not even a puddle of water. The mist had been shrouding nothing more than a shrunken marsh. What I had smelt and seen, however, was a ghost lake, for I later discovered that an old lake had indeed once stretched across that valley. And the sound of the leaping fish? That might also have been a ghost, but it was more probably the sound of a startled fox or badger turning suddenly in dry leaves, all echo and illusion, brought on by the intoxicating air and a mind too inclined towards carp fishing. Years passed, and I almost gave up my belief in the perfect pool. But now, after a quarter of a century, I think I might have found it. You've been listening to Chris Yates reading an extract from his book, The Secret Carp. The whole book is now available as an audiobook from merlinunwin.co.uk. Whether it's gloriously sunny or a spring downpour, you can always get outdoors with regatta. So what are you waiting for? Find a route, grab your walking shoes and start exploring. 
Regatta Great Outdoors offers all types of performance footwear, from technical hiking boots for regular ramblers to durable walking shoes for the whole family. With waterproof and breathable qualities, shock-absorbing comfort and superior grip, Regatta footwear is designed to withstand whatever challenges Mother Nature throws your way. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com.